0: Boy, that's a wonderful hymn, isn't it? And that third verse is a favorite. uh, So picturesque, isn't it? And uh, like the Lord setting us free from the dungeon of sin. Let's uh, open our Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we are finishing off the book of Hebrews tonight. Tonight. Wow. Thirteen chapters. Uh, let me think now. 24, 21 months. That's how long we've been working on it. Now, it hasn't been every single Wednesday because we've had a number of uh, diversions in there, several Wednesdays where we were not able to uh, deal with it. So it wasn't 21 months. So it was something less than that. But still, it's taken us a while. In this chapter 13... Paul starts summarizing his entire book and he, um, well, he sums it up is what I should say and he gives the readers four uh, final admonitions. He tells them to maintain Christian love, Christian submission, Christian doctrine, and Christian behavior. And now he comes to the last six verses, the last 125 words. What will he tell his beloved readers? Well, he wants to leave them with a blessing. And I might add that in this blessing, Paul leaves them with the three C's one last time. You remember what the C's stand for? What's the first one? Christ. What's the second one? Covenants. What's the third one? Commitment. Yeah. Let's have a word of prayer, and we're going to start right in on verse 20. Our Heavenly Father, help us in our study tonight. Please, Lord, our hearts are are still hungry to hear from heaven, to hear your word. And so please help us, guide us, Lord, our, our steps as we walk through these last six verses. And our Father will give you the honor and the glory. Thank you for allowing us to do this marvelous study. It's uh, close to two years when we first began. And, And here, finally, we come to the very last Wednesday, and we thank you for each and every one that we've been able to go through the book of Hebrews. What a monumental task, and what a fantastic book this has been. And so, uh, lead and guide in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Verse 20. Now the God of peace. Remember, he's uh, in his final blessing now with uh, the people. The God of peace. And I'd like you to know, and you probably already know this, that true and lasting peace only comes from God. It doesn't come from anyone or anything else. So many people in this world think, well, if only I can retire, I'll have peace. Some think, if only I can get married, I'll have peace. Boy, are they in for a surprise, aren't they? Some think, if only I I could get a, a whole bunch of money together somehow or win the lotto or something then I'll have peace not so uh, peace is sought for by the world uh, under every rock uh, around every corner uh, but true and lasting peace is a gift from God I'll tell you what I um, Living for this world, living for the flesh, and even living for the devil, only brings turmoil, fear, and unrest. That's the only product that the devil peddles. But God wants to give peace. I cite for you Philippians 4, 7, it says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I cite for you Colossians 3:15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. And I cite for you Philippians 4, 9, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do... And the God of peace shall be with you. And so we say it again. Peace is something that God owns, and he will give it as a gift. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now, we're in verse 20 here. Uh, he's, he, Paul could have just said, Now, the God that brought again uh, from the dead our Lord Jesus or now God that brought again, but he said, no, the God of peace. And so he does this because he's in the final blessing. You know, the the home stretch there is, you know, the the finish line is is just a few feet away. He can almost touch it. And he wants to leave a blessing to the people. And so he's talking about the God of peace. And he says that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the first C. There's Christ right there, raised by God's power. And I want you to know something, that the resurrection was God's divine seal of approval, if you will, that what Christ did on the cross was acceptable. If it had not been acceptable, there would have been no resurrection. But it was acceptable, and the resurrection was proof that God put his blessing and stamp of approval, and God was pleased, yea, well pleased with what Jesus did. So the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is known as the good shepherd. He's known as the chief shepherd also in the scriptures. Psalm 23, remember, the Lord is my what? Right, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a wonderful thing to be able to know God in an intimate way like that. There are billions of people in the world today who believe that God somehow is out there and not quite too sure, you know, what form or, you know, but we wish we could know him, but there's just no hope. We can't know him. And so when we come along and we say that, yes, we know God, the creator, and we got up this morning and we spent time with him, talking with him, and we receive instruction from his word, they don't quite know how to handle that. They say, uh, how can that be? Uh, because uh, God is uh, is almighty and he's way out there and he's controlling the vast universe and and what are you? What am I? We're nothing. We're peons in the great, you know, of protoplasm or whatever that we call the universe and God is far too busy and uh, God probably doesn't even know you exist. Well, we've got news for them. God not only knows we exist, but He knows every hair on our head. He knows every atom in our body. He knows everything about us. There's not one person who is conceived in the womb that God does not know. Uh, No doubt there must be millions of miscarriages and abortions that happen every single year. And uh, little um, um, babies that never get born and they die in the womb somehow of course there are others that die shortly out of the womb and god knows every single one of them every single one god knows all of the names of all of the people in all of the developed countries of the world and he knows all of the names of all of the people in all the undeveloped countries and nations of the world you think of the deepest darkest armpit of the of the of the earth and if there's people there even one person god knows that one It's such a wonderful God. He is my shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. And so Paul, giving a final blessing to the readers, he says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And what do we have here? The second C, right? It's the covenant. Remember, the first C is Christ, and the second C is covenant here. And Christ's blood is the basis for this covenant, His shed blood. This covenant is everlasting. It says so right there, the blood of the everlasting covenant. That means that it will never be folded up and laid to one side like the covenant of law. In fact, turn back a couple pages, would you please, to chapter 8. And look at it again, chapter 8. And verse number 8, Hebrews 8.8, 8, it says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so this new covenant is what Jesus came to establish. And so this is the second covenant here, um, and it's in his blood um this covenant is an everlasting covenant, and it will never be set aside. It will never, nothing will ever take its place because it's everlasting. And listen to this: because you and I are connected to this everlasting covenant, it makes our salvation everlasting. Amen. It gives us a security. We are secure, folks. Nothing is going to shake us loose away from God. And so we come to verse 21. Now, in the light of what he said in verse 20, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. And I just want you to see that there is a possibility to attain a little perfection in this life. I know we love to say, well, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Never will be perfect until we get to heaven. But... Uh, there is a way for you and I to attain a li- at least a little bit of perfection. Now, there, there are those uh, amongst saved Christendom who believe in a thing um, called ultimate perfection. Actually, they have a couple of different names for it. Uh, Holy sanctified is another way they put it. But the idea is, in your Christian life, you reach a point where you absolutely do not sin. You are absolutely sinless from that point on until you go to heaven. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I think that that would be the ultimate. I mean, listen, if there was a way to do it, uh, I would do it if it meant uh, cutting off a hand or something or in order to be absolutely sinless and beyond um, uh, uh, taint of, uh, of human error or sin, I would do it. I would sacrifice what I'd have to do because sin is our enemy. Sin is what nailed our Savior to the cross. Sin is what damns men's souls and lands them into hell. And so sin is not our friend. Sin is our enemy. Sin is not something we're to put up with and mollycoddle and make excuses for. The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will, what? Not hear me. And so uh, sin is never right. It's never good. We never want to make excuse for it. If there was a way whereby cutting off a a part of our body or inflicting something or giving away whatever that we could attain sinless perfection. Well, I'd be first in line. I'd be the first one to want to do it because uh, when I sin, I I, I feel uh, so bad before my Lord and uh, I, I, I beg His forgiveness. Uh, If we confess our sins, hmm? he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there is a way for you and I to attain a little bit of perfection. Uh, And I mean perfection here on earth. And it's mentioned right here in verse 21. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Every time you and I do God's perfect will, that little part of our life was perfect. Every time you perfectly do God's perfect will for how many minutes or hours or whatever or seconds or something, that little piece of your life is absolutely perfect. You see, in the eyes of God, the only thing that's really worthwhile is His will. Now, Uh, the devil challenges that just like the devil challenges all of what God says goes right back to the Garden of Eden uh, in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die the devil what did the devil do he said oh you you won't die you won't die he denied God's word right there God tells us in the Bible that his will is perfect and it's the only thing that's that's worth doing and that's pleasing in his sight the devil comes along and says, oh, that's just God throwing his weight around. That's just God uh, being jealous because uh, he, he, he doesn't want you to do your own thing. He wants you to be his little zombie, his little robot. He wants to keep you under his thumb. That's why he tells you that. But don't you worry. You go about and do your own thing. And if God has a problem with that, well, you know, he, he'll just have to live with it. And these are lies of the devil. But it's amazing how many of us buy into some form of that. And we think that our will is, is okay. His may be perfect, but ours isn't exactly wicked. Uh, we've got pretty good ideas too. We've got some good thoughts. And boy, you know, we've got some good righteous thoughts and things that we would like to, to see happen. And what's wrong with that? Well, the point is that there's only one thing that's perfect. And that's God's will. He tells us in, uh, in, in uh, the Old Testament, he says, my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. God's ways and his thoughts are so much better, so much higher. He takes everything into account. Have you ever tried to play a game at checkers or chess or something and you've made a wrong move? And then the person on the other side of the board says, oh, as soon as they, or their eyes open, and you think, oh no, I'm dead. And click, 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 and boom. You know, they've eaten up a bunch of your pieces and you feel like tipping the board. And, you know, let's go watch something instead or go out and get a coffee. God sees everything, everything, everything. Everything, everything. We've got some, some men in the world who are... Uh, the greatest of the great of the, the greatest greatest chess players did you know if God were to sit down on the other side of the table they, have, they don't stand a chance they cannot they can't win they can't even draw they'd lose every single stinking game they'd lose they, 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 they'd go and, and jump out the window they'd say I, 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 I can beat any living man but I can't even get one point off of God he's that good Imagine playing golf with someone who gets a hole in one every time he hits the ball. You know, uh, there's 18 holes in the golf game, right? People, man, if they can break 100, they're doing great. God gets 18. Well, what if God were to bounce from one, you know, cup into the next cup into the next cup so he gets one, one shot, and he's got all 18 done? Well, you know, God is able to do things like that, Right? God is so much better than we are. And often we forget that. And we think that, well, this is what I think should, you know, and this is what I'd like to see. And when we go to prayer, then usually the way we pray is, well, Lord, please would you bless this? Please, Lord, would would you just allow this to happen? Just let me win once, Lord. Just one big fat lotto. Just one, Lord. Just, Just let me do one. And I'll give you your share. (laughs) Boy, aren't we generous. And these things are not God's way. And so if we pray anything according to His will, He hears us. That means if we pray everything else that's not according to His will, it's like He doesn't hear us. Good thing too. Because when God hears, then He answers. If God were to give us the things we ask for, I, I believe it, we would mess things up so badly. We want to see uh, Joe Blow saved, and we want this to happen and that to happen. And God says, uh-uh, that's not the way. Oh, this is the way. It has to be. And if God says, okay, not only would Joe Blow not get saved, but none of his family would get saved or his friends, and they'd come and they'd kill you maybe. God knows. And so the only thing that's perfect is His will. And so if you look at it again, verse 21, make you perfect in every good work to do His will. And I'm just suggesting to you that it's possible to have little bits of absolute perfection here on earth. How? By doing His will. Now, remember the prayer that Jesus taught us in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come... What's the next words? Thy will be done. Then what did he say? On earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is God's will carried out in heaven? When God wants something done, and uh, he's got all these angels there, when God wants something done, is it done half-heartedly? Is it done when they get around to it? No, you know that's not true. God's will up in heaven is done, you know, instant. You know, when when God wants something, you know, it's like, Speak, Lord, for thy servants here. Tell us what to do. And they drop whatever they're doing and they run to do his will. It's done promptly. It's done perfectly. And then Jesus went and taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's possible for you and I to do God's will the same way they do it in heaven. We can do it Perfectly. And so for that little piece of your life, and I I would like to suggest to you that most Christians have several of these little pieces, you know, while they're on earth, that for that little piece that they've done God's will, they've, they've lived a perfect life. I'll give you an example. God's Spirit is telling you, you ought to read your Bible and pray. And so you get up in the morning, and you say, oh man, I've got, I've got to get up early. There's no way, other way. So you set your alarm a bit early, and you get up, and you're kind of tired something, but I'm going to read my Bible and pray. I'm going to get along with God, meet with God. Well, you're doing His will. And for that little slice of time, you are living a perfect life because you're doing His will on earth. So for that little piece of time... Now, listen, when you come out of your prayer closet, maybe you go have an argument with your family or something or stub your toe and say, and you, psh, there goes your perfection. <laughs> it's over. But while you did God's will, that was perfect. The Holy Spirit is telling you to go invite that neighbor to church for the church birthday on October 7th because they'll hear the gospel. And you're all nervous and scared, but you go and you invite them and they say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. And you say, oh, I, I lost. No, You won. Because for that little bit of time that you invited them, you were absolutely perfect before God. That was His perfect will, and you were fulfilling His perfect will. Isn't that exciting? I think that's a tremendous truth right there. What a blessing. I mean, we could put the period right there. But he goes on. He says, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And I say it again that, you know, it doesn't occur to us that God's way is the only way. His will is the only will because it's perfect. There's only one thing that's perfect and that's God, God's will. Um, only his will is perfect and it's the only thing that's well pleasing in his sight now we have these uh, different levels like almost a thermometer well it's really bad that's not so bad uh, it's kind of iffy well you know it's showing promise well it's, it's, it's okay oh it's, it's good oh it's very good oh it's at the top and that's how we tend to rate things don't we well, you know that God isn't always like that. He sees people as either saved or lost, right? And even though someone may have a great character quality and they walk the dog and they cut their grass and they pay their taxes and they, they say, uh, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, they're very polite, but they're not saved. Well, you see, they're wicked <laughs> in the sight of God. They're, they're lost. They're not saved. They're lost. They're not part of God's family. They're part of the devil's kingdom. And that's how God sees things. Usually it's just black and white. You're on this side or you're not. You're on that side. We tend to sort of gradiate things, you know. And when we get here into this verse 21, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, the only thing that's well-pleasing in his sight is God's perfect will. So it's either well-pleasing or it's not. It's not like God's up in heaven and He says, well, you didn't do my well-pleasing perfect will, but, you know, you were pretty close. You're, say, 80%. So instead of being well-pleasing, you were just pleasing. It's not like that. It doesn't work that way. Um, Christ's death on the cross. Imagine if He didn't exactly do it exactly the way God wanted well, Christ died on the cross, and so out of 100%, it wasn't 100%. You know, it was 90%. It was pretty good, you see. 90% is pretty good. He's up there in the, the uh, A category, I suppose. If we were to give him a school grade, he's up there in the A's. But it wasn't 100%. Well, it's no good. It's no good. In the Old Testament, when they did the um, Day of Atonement and uh, so on, and the sacrificial lamb was uh, uh, slain and, and, and such, everything everything had to be perfect. There were several parts to it, and it had to be done right. And if it, everything wasn't done right, it was no good. When they made copies of the Scriptures, it, they painstakingly dipped that little pen in the ink and they would start carefully making the, the Hebrew letters, copying the scriptures knowing that on this page there were so many characters and then it would count up the characters and if it didn't match you know if there was supposed to be 823 characters on that page and there was 822 or something no good they would tear it up, start over again had to be perfect there's only one thing that's well-pleasing in God's eyes and that's his will. That's why when you do his will for that little piece of time, that little sliver, you're perfect. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do his will all the time and never fall out of it, but just go from, you know, victory to victory always. You know, to do that, we have to maintain unbroken fellowship with the Lord throughout the day. Now, you might think that's impossible, but I beg to differ. I think it is possible to maintain unbroken fellowship with the Lord. We've proven it to ourselves over a period of five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, where we seem to be enthralled with the things of God and we're sort of feeling close to the Lord. Well, why can't we make it an hour? Why couldn't we make it two hours? Why couldn't we go three hours or four hours? Why couldn't we uh, be in a church service where we feel so close to God? We're walking with the Lord. Then the last amen is said. And as we turn and we start walking out, we're still silently fellowshipping with the Lord. And in our hearts, we're praying for people we see and asking for wisdom as we open our mouths and speak and giving thanks to God for this and the other thing and and then having a thought of what we should be doing and talking it over with God as we leave church. Why can't we stay in a state of unbroken fellowship with God? I think it's possible. I think we can do that. Is it easy? No. (laughs) It's like walking a tightrope. Uh, But it's possible. There are people that walk tightropes, a lot of them. Whoa, don't they fall off? Of course they do. You know, even the best will fall off. But it's possible for you and I to extend our fellowship with the Lord outside of our prayer closets. If you spend 15 minutes with the Lord and you leave your prayer closet, you can still, you know, throughout your trip to work even, be in fellowship with the Lord. Well, He says, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Uh, And then he says it's through Jesus Christ. And of course, apart from Christ, it has no value. Even if what you're doing is uh, something wonderful. Supposing you did some wonderful work for God, but it wasn't done through Christ. Now you might think, well, all right you know, so what? It's still a wonderful work. I mean I just I just didn't do it consciously through Christ. I just didn't do it for his honor glory, but it was a it was a good work. And it's gotta count for something. Well for this, if you were to confer with Christ in Matthew chapter seven, he said that in that day many shall say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? and in thy name done, uh, cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Now, uh, we might look around and say, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, preaching in the name of Christ, isn't that a good thing? And getting rid of those devils, isn't that something good? And doing wonderful works, isn't that what we want? And then Jesus says, I never knew you. So they were not doing it through Christ. They were doing it through themselves maybe for their own glory, who knows, doesn't matter, but they weren't doing it through Jesus Christ. And here Paul says, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And then he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now the Jews were taught to glorify God. That's what they were taught now Paul is writing here about Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. And so this tells us that Jesus Christ is God. This is a powerful uh, proof here of who Jesus is. And by the way, can I suggest to you that when we get to heaven, part of what we're going to be doing for all eternity is worshiping the Lord and glorifying him. We're going to do that. Why? Because we want to. That's Why? Do you remember the last time you were so very close to God? Do you remember that? Do you remember how your heart was so in love with God and so how you wanted to just worship him and thank him and praise him? Well, that's what we're going to be doing in heaven because the sin nature will be gone. We'll be right there in front of God and we'll see things like we never saw before and we'll be so thankful to him And we'll want to worship Him. And of course, we're going to be beyond time. It's not going to be like 24 hours in a day or nothing like that. Time is beyond us now. We're into a whole new dimension. And for all eternity, all of heaven is going to be giving glory to Jesus Christ. And so if that's the case, we should be starting now. Make it part of your daily routine to give glory to Christ every day. Every day. It should be done. And then look what Paul adds at the end of verse 21. What does it say? I didn't hear. What does it say? Sorry, still can't hear you. What does it say? Oh, boy. Again? On the count of three. One, two, three. Wow. <laughs> Imagine us in heaven. All of a sudden, we're zoomed up to heaven, the glory of God, and there's Christ on the throne. And there we are. Amen. (laughs) Well, amen. It's the seal of approval on what Paul just wrote. He's saying, to whom be glory forever and ever. And it's like he just pounds the desk, says, amen. Verse 22, and I beseech you, brethren. Now, this here is not a command, but it's it's like an earnest begging. He says, suffer the word of exhortation. Exhortation is a good Bible word. And it means like to call upon us, to, um, uh, to, uh, to call from without and, and call us out to a challenge. Suffer the word of exhortation means, it means put up with it. It means allow it. Now, this is where the third C comes in. And what's the third C? Commitment, right. And without commitment, the other two C's don't do us any good because it takes a commitment on our part. This is our side of the equation. The third C, through teaching and through preaching. Uh, But did you know that not every Christian will endure sound doctrine. Did you know that? Paul wrote, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. And yet there are Christians who will not do it. They will not suffer it. They will not let it happen. They will not allow it. Because according to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You wonder why it is that guys like Benny Hinn are not shot or tarred and feathered and run out of town. It's because his hearers want to hear what he has to say. That's why. And look at the tens of thousands that want to hear the words coming out of his mouth. That's the reason why uh, he hasn't, you know, a hit squad hasn't found him or something, is because he's got so many fans out there. Uh, People just adore the kind of things that come out of his mouth. And he's not teaching sound doctrine. He's teaching all kinds of fables and stories that cannot be substantiated. And people are lapping it up. Why? Because they have itching ears, and that's exactly what they want to hear. And, you know, there are a lot of people like that. Uh, There's a lot of scams out there where people are saying, oh, listen, you've won a million dollars. I have, yes, you have. Uh, but you, you have to pay the certain fees first to get your million dollars. Oh, okay, what do I have to pay? Well, there's a um, $500 fee that you have to, you know, that, that'll register your name. Okay, here's the 500. Now there's a $1,000 fee to uh, start the, uh, the machinery to uh, uh, open its jaws and pour you out the money. Uh, so, okay, here's a thousand. Well, where's my money? Oh, something went wrong. We're going to have to send in a specialist, and that's going to cost more money. It's going to cost another $10,000. But don't you worry, that million is, is as good as yours. Meanwhile, they're forking out all of this money. Why are they doing that? Are they crazy? They love to hear. Oh, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich. This man told me I've I've won a million dollars. And you've heard of the Reader's Digest uh, lottery thing? Sweepstakes. The Reader's Digest sweepstakes. That's been around for years and years. And there's scams on that. And people are being told that they've won the Reader's Digest sweepstakes. But they just have to fork over some money first. And people are falling for it. And they're giving their money out. Uh, My wife and I watched a little... um, a news uh, thing, like a W5 kind of a news thing where they did an expose on scams. And this one guy, he, uh, boy, he was, he was just, didn't know what he was going to do because he had given over, I, thought, I think it was $100,000 to one of these scams. Now, I, I remember thinking to myself, that poor man, and yet how stupid, how stupid. Can you imagine if we weren't talking money, we were talking children? Well, you know, you need to give over one of your children. Oh, well, Billy Bob, I'm so sorry to... to, Here you go, here's my son. All right, now, I'm sorry, it's going to cost you another daughter as well. Oh, no, all right, here's my daughter. Can you imagine how crazy people would be to give away their children like that? And yet they give away their money like that, all in hopes of, of some nonsense. But we've got preachers today that are not teaching sound doctrine. And I'd like to remind you something. This will encourage you. Sound doctrine needs to be endured. <laughs> it needs to be endured. It means you've got to sit through some of it. <laughs> that should encourage you. Yeah. Oh, why do we have to sit through this? It's good for you. It's like, you know, your cod liver oil, right? You know, your medicine. Anything that tastes bad has got to be good for you. Anything that tastes good, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's going to send your blood sugar sky high or your cholesterol or something. Oh, all that good tasting fast food and all of that Chinese food stuff. Not good for us. But anyhow, we come to this third C. I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. Now he says here, for I have written a letter unto you in a few words. He's talking about the book of Hebrews. Now, I ask you, would you consider the entire book of Hebrews to be a few words? Mm -hmm. Hebrews has 13 chapters. It has 303 verses. It has 6,897 words in it. And so I ask you again, is 6,897 words a few? Does that sound like a few words? Well, we're talking relativity here. Few compared to what? Consider that the average reader can read a 350-page novel containing 100,000 words in just under six hours. That's very possible for an average reader to read a 6 Sorry, a 350-page novel of 100,000 words in under six hours. And so if you compare 100,000 words with 6,897 words, does it seem like a few? It should, because it's really not that much. It really isn't. The entire book of Hebrews (laughs) is really just a few words. So he says here, I've written a letter unto you in a few words. Verse 23, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. Now, Timothy apparently was in Rome. Um, Can you turn back a few pages to the book of 2 Timothy? Just keep going to the left and you'll see 2 Timothy. Don't go very far. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 13, uh, Paul actually was in Rome twice and in prison there. Verse 13, Paul writes to Timothy, says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. So these were some of Paul's earthly goods. But he was asking Timothy to bring them with him when he came to Rome. And... Uh, If you have a King James Bible at the very end of the chapter of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, you may have some tiny little words written on the bottom. If you do, you can follow along. If you don't, you can listen. It says, The second epistle unto Timotheus ordained the first bishop, that means a pastor, of the church of the Ephesians, was written from Rome when Paul was brought before Nero. Now, Nero, uh, he was the emperor. He was the mad emperor. And he was on the throne from A.D. 54 to A.D. 68. And so... um, Paul was brought before Nero the second time. Anyhow, this is just to show you that, yes, indeed, Timothy was in Rome. Now, uh, he was also a prisoner, according to this. He would have been a prisoner for the gospel's sake. He wasn't a prisoner because he went and stole something from a, a meat shop. He was a prisoner for the gospel's sake, possibly in jail there at the same time as Paul. If you turn back, you go back to Hebrews, please, and go to chapter 10. Verse, uh, verse 34. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 34, he writes, For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, that means his time in prison there, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And also chapter 11 and verse 3 uh that is wrong thirteen three <laughs> there we are that is right hebrews thirteen three remember them that are in bonds as bound with them so um Quite possibly, Timothy was uh, in prison maybe the same time as Paul. Paul, I think, was set free first, and then um, Timothy was uh, set free. Now, by the way, the mention of Timothy is proof that Paul was the author of Hebrews. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, his right-hand man in the ministry. And that's who Timothy was connected with. So he says in verse 23... Uh, concerning Timothy, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Now, perhaps Paul's eyesight at this time was so bad that he was dependent upon Timothy to lead him. He couldn't make his own way. He couldn't go from here to there because he was so blind. And so he was writing and saying that if uh, if Timothy comes, then I'll come along with him. Apparently, he had uh, <coughs> such bad eyesight that he had to make his letters very big and you say well how did he write this letter they would write it for him Uh, a man would be his scribe and write it for him Uh, in fact at the very bottom of the chapter thirteen written to the hebrews from italy by timothy see that so paul would have dictated it and often what he would have done in his letters is he would have done something in there his eyesight was that bad I remember when we had our church back in Ottawa, we had a young man and his eyesight was the worst I'd ever seen. And he had to get something right up this close in order to read it. And I can still, you know, in my mind's eye, I can see his face and his eyes squirming to find the words on the line on the page. And, oh, there it And is. He'd start reading it. He had to get it up that close. Well, Paul had some bad eyesight problem. He would sign... A letter with large handwriting because that's all he could do Um, in church on Sundays uh, brother Tom Walker comes he's 93 and uh, his eyesight is shot he uh, he everything is blurry and it's so frustrating for him he used to be so independent and drive around his car and do things for the Lord now he has to be led by the hand and he's frail and he told me this past Sunday I just can't see anything anymore. And I know how frustrating that is for him. Um, Anything that he sees has to be in big, giant letters. And then he can just kind of make it out. So I don't think any of us here have that problem. But here this may be what Paul meant he said that if Timothy comes you know I'll, I'll catch a ride with him verse 24 salute all them that have the rule over you he's talking about the spiritual leaders which be the pastors and all the saints that's respect for all Christians did you know that the love that you you uh, share with your pastor you're to share with other Christians we are to love one another aren't we that's good to know Then he writes, he says, they of Italy salute you. Now that would be the Christians in Italy were sending their greeting to these Hebrew Christians that were probably spread around a little bit. And verse 25, grace be with you all. God works these days through grace. He works with grace. He doesn't work with law. Now this blessing, grace be with you, this blessing is found at the end of all of Paul's 14 epistles. This is another reason why we know that Paul wrote it, because this is definitely what he says. It's at the end of Romans. It's at the end of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's at the end of Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. It's at the end of Colossians. It's at the end of 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, at the end of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. It's at the end of Titus. It's at the end of Philemon. Here it is at the end of Hebrews. There's 14 of them. 14 letters 14 times he's telling them grace be with thee or grace be with you all depending who he's writing to every christian needs god's grace for every moment of the day never undersell discount god's grace always be aware of how much you need god's grace as much as you need air to breathe have you ever been in a situation where uh maybe your head has been underwater water? Or maybe uh, your, your mean brother or sister held the pillow down over your head while you squirmed and screamed, I can't breathe, I'm going to die. Uh, you need air. You have to be able to breathe and you need grace. You need grace even more than you need air to breathe. You need grace. There's a true story of Charles Spurgeon in the late 1800s and another preacher in London named Joseph Parker. Both of them had large churches in the city of London in the late 1800s. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of the children that were admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. And so, from the pulpit next week, Spurgeon blasted Parker... The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church next Sunday to hear what he would have to say, his rebuttal. Parker stood up and he said to his congregation, I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday that they use to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. His crowd was delighted. The ushers, listen to this, for an offering, the ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Oh, that we would have such a problem (laughs) for the Lord's work. So later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study door. It was Spurgeon. He came to visit him. And he said to him, You know, Parker, you've practiced grace on me. You've given me not what I deserved. You've given me what I've needed. Every one of us needs God's grace. Now, there seems to be two kinds of grace. God seems to have two kinds of grace. Uh, For lack of a better term, I'll call number one the regular grace regular grace that he gives for basic needs when you get a head cold it's not a pleasant thing but you know that within a week it'll be gone you just have to live through it well that's God's regular grace that's going to make you well again did you know there are people in the world with immune systems so bad that a head cold will kill them did you know that There are people that suffer with immune deficiency so bad that a simple head cold can actually send them to their grave. Well, at least be instrumental anyhow. But us, we get a head cold or you get a little cut and you say, oh, I got a little cut. But you give it a kiss and a band-aid and you know by tomorrow it's gonna be feeling better. Well, what makes it feel better? How does this automatically happen? is with God's regular grace. And God's regular grace spreads out and covers a lot of areas in our lives and meets a lot of needs that we have. But then there's what I'd like to call special grace. And special grace is for special needs that come. The kind of needs where you come to Wednesday prayer meeting and you put up your hand and say, please pray for this, please pray for that. And it's a special need requiring special grace. And I'll tell you something, James says ye have not because ye ask not. And so I just want to suggest that there seems to be two kinds or two types of God's grace. And then, of course, the final amen. There it is right there. Let's say that word all together, shall we? Amen. <laughs> Did it feel good? It was the final amen in all of 14 of Paul's letters. It's like a prayer almost, asking God to make it happen, to allow it to be. The last words, if you have them in your King James Bible, it says, written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. Those words are not part of Scripture. They were added to the scriptures, uh, and it's actually credited to a pastor in the fifth century, that would be the 400s, his name was Euthalius, and he's the man apparently that figured a, a bunch of this stuff out and just added these little footnotes. So it's not, it's not part of uh, the the scripture, the book of Hebrews. So when I told you that there was six thousand and um uh what did I say eight hundred and ninety-seven words, it doesn't include those last few words because that's not exactly scripture. Folks, we're done. This great book of Hebrews finishes on a high note. It finishes being a blessing to its readers. And I want to suggest that likewise, you and I, our Christian lives need to finish on a high note. It's one thing to start great, but how do you finish? Some people start great and they finish poorly. Others, they start poorly, but they finish great. It's important, it's imperative that we as Christians finish our Christian lives on a high note. That we be a blessing to others. We be a blessing to God, of course. And the only way we can do it is according to the three C's. And of course, that's Christ. Keeping Christ first in your life. Making sure that Christ is the the head of your home, sitting on the throne of your heart, that you spend time with that King of kings and Lord of lords daily. Keep Christ in his rightful position. And then the covenant, this covenant of grace, uh, the blood of Christ made the covenant of grace possible. This grace, meaning (coughs) the divine favor that God gives his, his pleasing, His opening of His arms to us. This is the, the excitement of grace. He deals with us on the basis of grace. And of course, keeping grace in our minds that we need it like we need air to breathe. And then commitment. None of it's any good without commitment. Unless you and I commit ourselves on a daily basis to Christ and to His glory and to trying to be gracious to others, but mainly trying to find and do God's perfect will. If you can find and do God's perfect will every day of your life, at least for a portion of that day, every day, you will be perfect whilst you do God's perfect will. Maybe it's talking to a stranger. Maybe it's leaving a gospel tract. Maybe it's something as simple as coming to church, tithing, supporting missions, praying, getting involved in ministry. All, any and all of God's perfect will as while you do that perfect will, you can't help but be perfect for whatever time it takes. Tell you what, We've come to the end. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.